0: Well, thank you, Cody, for those kind words. I'm just happy that I get to preach in this new space before Cody, so. (laughs) So yeah, as Cody said, we're going to be in Psalm 139, so if you could take your Bibles and open up to Psalm 139, that would be great. I'm going to pray for us first. Lord, you know how weak that I am. You know... Lord, that I can do nothing apart from you, Lord, apart from abiding in you, Lord. So I ask this morning that you would help me preach your word faithfully, that you would carry along my voice, Lord, and give me clarity of speech, and that the gospel would be just so just so plain to us this morning, Lord. And I pray for all of our hearts that you would stir us up, Lord, to worship you truly in spirit and in truth, Lord, and that your grace would just be na- known to us this morning. and God, let us worship you, Lord, help us worship you, and let us gaze upon you through the text this morning. pray this in your name, amen. Well, before I read the psalm for us, I want to start out with uh, telling a story or a parable, and it's called the Parable of the Chinese Farmer, and it actually has its roots in ancient Taoist China. So it's, it's not a Christian parable. It's not a Christian story. It's very much a non-believing parable, a pagan story. But nonetheless, I think there's some lessons for us in it. And it goes like this. Once upon a time, there was a Chinese farmer, and he had a horse. One day, his horse ran away. And so that night, his friends came to his house to commiserate with him. And they said, oh, what bad luck, what bad fortune. That your one and only horse ran away, and the Chinese farmer says, "Maybe." The very next day, the horse returns with seven other wild horses, and so again the friends of the farmer show up to his house and they say, "Wow! What what good luck! What good fortune! That your horse returned and brought with it seven others. Look, you have eight horses now." And the Chinese farmer again replied maybe the very next day his son was out trying to break one of the new wild horses and was riding it and then was thrown from the horse and he broke his leg and so once again the friends show up to the farmer's house and and are commiserating again they go oh what bad luck what bad fortune that your son broke his leg breaking in one of these wild horses And again, the Chinese farmer responded to his friends, maybe. Again, the next day, the conscription officers show up to conscript young men into the army, and they decided not to enlist his son because he had a broken leg. And so once again, the friends show up, and they say, wow, what good fortune, what good luck that your son does not have to go and fight In this war, and again, the Chinese farmer responded, Maybe. Now, obviously, this isn't a Christian parable, but there's something obviously very Christian y about it, and you probably already see it. Even non believers are noticing something about reality, about the complexity of reality, that they really don't know or we really don't know what tomorrow is going to bring. We really don't know how the events of today are going to impact the future. And so best to be patient and not just to freak out and think the world is falling apart, but to trust in a sense. So what non-believers call good luck, bad luck, good fortune, a bad fortune, maybe even a silver lining, we Christians, we have a word for this we have a theology of this and we call it providence we call it providence and we point to scriptures like romans 8:28 that says for those who love god all things work together for good so we have a grounding in the scriptures for the way in which reality unfolds before us now we can make this story or this parable biblical though And we can kind of overlay this idea of going back and forth between good and bad over the Joseph story. And I'm sure you're very familiar with the Joseph story in Genesis. And we could say, once upon a time, there was a young man who was greatly loved by his father. His name was Joseph. And his father loved him more than all of his older brothers. And so his father made him this robe of many colors and gave it to him to show him his love. And we could say, oh, what good fortune, what good luck for this, this son, Joseph. Maybe. But then one day, his older brothers were jealous and, and angry at him and hated him for his father, the father's love for him. And so they tried to kill him, but eventually decided to instead sell him into slavery, into Egypt. Oh, what bad luck, what bad fortune. Maybe. Maybe. But then as he's in slavery, he's working for his master, Potiphar, and he's doing so well that Potiphar puts him over everything. And he's doing so well. Oh, what good luck, what good fortune that he has a master like Potiphar. Maybe. But Joseph is handsome. Oh, what good luck. But then one day, Potiphar's wife takes a liking to him and tries to seduce him. Oh, no, what bad luck, what bad fortune. And he flees and he gets away from her. Oh what good luck, what good fortune. But his garment is left behind, and, and then Potiphar's wife accuses him of being the one to try to seduce her. Oh what bad luck. What bad fortune. Maybe. He's put into prison, meets these other two prisoners, the cupbearer and the bread maker. He used to work for Pharaoh. And they have these dreams and Joseph is able to interpret their dreams. Oh what good luck, what good fortune. the cupbearer is going to be restored to his position by pharaoh's side and he tells the cupbearer well when you get restored tell pharaoh about me and there seems to be this silver lining oh there's some good luck coming but the cupbearer forgets to tell pharaoh what bad luck what bad fortune maybe but then sure enough, Pharaoh was struggling with dreams and the cupbearer remembers and, and he tells Pharaoh about Joseph and Joseph is brought out of prison. He interprets the dreams as you all know and he says there's going to be seven years of prosperity and then seven years of famine and then Pharaoh puts Joseph over everything and no one is greater in all the world than Joseph except Pharaoh himself. What good luck. What good fortune. Wow, look at how that just came about by chance. Maybe. But then, obviously, we know the story. Again, Joseph's brothers show up to buy grain, and eventually he reveals himself to them, and he says, come into Egypt so that you can survive this famine. What good luck, what good fortune, that Joseph was able to save his whole family from this famine. And so, we then come to the very end of the Genesis narrative, Genesis 15, the story of Joseph. Joseph. And we see, though, that this wasn't a matter of good luck, good fortune, chance, a silver lining. This was a matter of providence and God's sovereign will. And so Joseph's brothers, they, they, they're fearful of him. He, they believe that he's going to get vengeance on them for selling him into slavery. And Joseph says this at the very end of Genesis, Genesis 50, verses 20 through 21. He says, As for you, You meant evil against me, but God meant it for good. To bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. So do not fear. I will provide for you and your little ones. Thus he comforted them and spoke kindly to them. There it is right there. As for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good. So God was working this entire time, what looks like random chance and good fortune and bad fortune, as we saw in that parable of the Chinese farmer, is actually providence and God's sovereign will unfolding before us and before Joseph. Nothing is random, no event, no interaction, no thought, no decision. Nothing happens apart from God's divine will. Now, where do we see this in Scripture? Obviously, we see it all over the place. We see it in Genesis. We see it with Daniel. We see it with Moses. We see it everywhere. But I think we get a good theology of this in Psalm 139. So let's look at Psalm 139 now and and read it. This is a Psalm of David. He says, "'O Lord, you have searched me and known me. You know when I sit down and when I rise up. You discern my thoughts from afar. You search up my path and my lying down and are acquainted with all my ways.'" Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts. And see if there be any grievous way in me. And lead me in the way everlasting. So obviously you see that this is, again, a psalm of David. And there's four clear sections in it. And in the fourth section, we have a part that seems like it's a little bit out of place. Obviously, if you look down, verse 19, Oh, that you would slay the wicked, O God. Oh, men of blood, depart from me. You know, I hate those who hate you, O Lord. And we go, that just seems a little bit out of place. This psalm of thanksgiving and praise to the Lord, and all of a sudden it transitions for a moment into this imprecatory psalm. But it gives us a glimpse into the context of what is going on, Likely. The background. We really don't know too much of what the background is to the psalm, but again, whatever's going on, probably David is getting assaulted by his enemies. People are out to get him. I mean, just read you know the story of David in First and Second Samuel. Like people are always out to get David, and so his enemies are after him. These men of blood, these men who hate God, and so David is likely suffering. He's being afflicted, and he's remembering. And reminding himself of the nature of God. And this is going to comfort him. This is going to comfort him. And so in times of despair and suffering, loss and persecution, we desperately need a fresh reminder that there is no good luck or bad luck, good fortune or bad fortune, but only God's sovereign will unfolding before our very eyes. And so this morning, what I want you to know And to trust our four truths about God's sovereign nature to help you in times of trouble and suffering. Again, I want you to know and to trust four truths about God's sovereign nature to help you in times of trouble and suffering. And the first truth is this. God knows everything about you. God knows everything about you. Look at verses one through six. I'm not gonna reread it, but likely you can just notice that there is this repetition of this word no or a form of the word no four times in verses 1 through 6. And in the Bible, in, in the Hebrew language, this word no, it often expresses this deep, intimate knowledge. And so the Bible will use this word to say that Adam knew Eve or Abraham knew Sarah or Jacob knew Rachel. Obviously, I think you get what it's saying. This is describing a deep, covenantal, marital intimacy. The one flesh type of knowledge. There's no knowledge or knowing deeper or more comprehensive or truer or, marked by, or more marked by love than this type of knowing. And so what David is saying is, God, you know me like that. You know me deeply and intimately. And what David does is, you know, he could have just said, God, you know everything about me. But he's more poetic than that, obviously. And so he, he paints this picture of God's knowledge encapsulating us, surrounding us. He creates these bookends with the language. Just look, when I sit down and when I rise up, my path and my lying down You hem me in behind and before. God's knowledge encapsulates you. It encapsulates David. He paints this amazing picture of God surrounding us with his knowledge. He knows every part of your being, he knows your actions, he knows your thoughts, your movements, your desires, your intentions. He knows it all. There's no part of your life or your existence that he does not know. Again, there is no human relationship that experiences such a deep form of knowledge than marriage between a husband and a wife. And when a husband and wife are meeting each other and getting, you know, hopefully a husband and wife, but when they start dating, they obviously meet each other maybe if they met in college, and they want to get to know each other. They want to know who this other person is. And so you inevitably have to start explaining and telling the other person about your past. I want to know about your childhood. I want to know how you grew up, where you grew up. I want to know about your parents and your your siblings. I want to know about some adventures that you went on. I want to know about what you know just intellectually. I want to know all these things. And I want to tell you about myself. And so in a dating relationship, there is, like, I want to know who you are. I want to grow in intimacy with you. And eventually, when you enter into the covenant of marriage, there is this reality of, I want this person to know everything about me and then to choose to love me. And I I want to know everything about them And then choose to love them That's why the covenant of marriage is so amazing And so intimate But obviously we are marked by sin We are sinners So one thing we just forget our lives We forget what we were like 10 years ago We don't remember all the things we thought We don't remember all the things we did So we can never tell someone That we're courting so to speak Or dating or even married to All about our past We don't even remember it So there's a breakdown in knowledge there. We might even remember things, but we think, oh, they're just too insignificant or too trivial to even tell this person. Or, because we're sinful, there's parts of our past, things that we've done that we're ashamed of and embarrassed about. And so we cover that up. And we go, I'm not gonna tell them about that part of my life. Because if they knew about that part of my life. They might never want to continue with me. They might not want to enter into the covenant with me. And so we hide parts of our life and our sin. But obviously that's going to create a problem in the future and in marriage. But again, where our human knowledge and our human relationships break down because of sin, God's knowledge of us does not. He knows every single thing about us. He knows every dream we've ever dreamt, every thought we've ever had. And he chooses to love us. And he chooses to enter into a covenant with us. It's an amazing, amazing thing. God knows us perfectly. And he knows our future too. I want you to realize this. Look at verse four. Even before a word is on my tongue. Behold, O Lord, you know it altogether. You know what I'm going to say before I even say it. You know what I'm going to think before I even think it. You know what I'm going to do before I even do it. He knows our future. Now, I'm just going to table that for a moment, and we're going to pick that back up in point three, and I'm going to answer the question of how does He know that? How does He know our future? But for now, we're just going to set that aside. And so, this truth that God knows everything about us, we we could have four potential responses to this. The first one is tear. Tear. And that would likely be the response of somebody who does not know God in a saving way. They have not entered into the covenant with Him, they are still His enemies. They are still haters of him. And so, this idea that God knows everything about me, all the wicked things that I've ever done, that terrifies me because he's my judge, and I want to get away from him. I don't want him to have that knowledge of me. I want to hide that part of me. And so, maybe you're sitting here this morning and, and you aren't in a relationship with Christ, and so this terrifies you. And it probably should. But there is a second response, and it's this. It's comfort. And that is what David's response is. And if you're in Christ, that should be your response. You hear about this all-encompassing knowledge that God has of you, and it should comfort you. Because once again, there's nothing hidden to God, and he enters into a covenant with you. There's no hidden sin that would catch him off guard, like, oh, I didn't know about that. Yeah, if I knew about that part of your life, yeah, I wouldn't have entered into a covenant with you. No. So this should comfort us who are in Christ. It should be a balm to us. Now the third response should be humility. Because obviously we realize and we should be confronted with the reality that I don't have this type of knowledge. I don't know like God knows. I am not And that should humble me. In our pride, we want that type of knowledge, though. I mean, that was really the temptation in the garden with Eve. You know, you had this tree of the knowledge of good and evil, and Satan came and tempted Eve and said, God's holding out something from you. He's being stingy with you. He's not telling you everything. And if you could just eat of this fruit, you would be like God. You would know Good and evil, like God knows good and evil. And so Eve was tempted and she was deceived and she ate of the tree that she was commanded not to eat from. And so we even still feel that in our flesh. We feel this, oh, I just want to know the future though, God. I want to know if I'm going to move. I want to know what job I'm going to have. I want to know who I'm going to marry, how many kids I'm going to have. I want to know these things. But we have to be humbled by the reality that we're not God. And we will never know these things. The secret things belong to the Lord, but the things revealed belong to us. We are revealed that God knows everything, and we don't. So let's trust that. And that should finally lead us into the fourth potential response, and that is to marvel at his knowledge and marvel at God's character and worship him then. Look at verse 6. This is what David does. He's thinking about God's knowledge. He's reminding himself of God's knowledge, and he just can't help himself. He says, such knowledge is too wonderful for me. It is high. I cannot attain it. He worships. So where there is uncertainty, your call is to obey God by trusting his knowledge in humility. Well, let's move on to our second truth that i want you to know and to trust and it's this you cannot escape god's presence you cannot escape god's presence again look at verses 7 through 12 this is obviously one of the clearest teachings in the bible about what we would call the omnipresence of god which just means that god is everywhere god is everywhere Notice how David begins, where shall I go from your spirit or where shall I flee from your presence? He equates the spirit with the presence of God. God's spirit is everywhere, everywhere. Like God's knowledge, God's presence encapsulates us, surrounds us. And so David again is going to give us some poetic language to, to show us, to describe to us how God's presence surrounds us and encapsulates us and he starts with the vertical he starts with the vertical look at verse 8 if I ascend to heaven you are there he's above us if I make my bed in Sheol you are there he is below us he's above us he's below us now we have to pause for a moment because it makes sense to us That God is present in heaven obviously, obviously the scriptures Make that very clear Often and frequently God is described as a dwelling in heaven That is the dwelling place of God Heaven But when David says That if I, if I make my bed in Sheol The underworld Hell You are there You know some people think That well hell is totally void of the presence of God. That's why it's hell. You know, we make a little bit of an argument, uh, a logical argument. We might say, well, because God is all good, and hell is obviously bad, therefore then, hell is hell because God's presence isn't there. Because if his presence was there, well then it wouldn't be hell. And we kind of, that's how we reason through it or think through it. But again, that would contradict what David is saying here. No, God's presence actually is in hell as well because God is everywhere. How could there be a place where he is not? Think of it this way. Somebody who hates God, who is a non-believer and wants nothing to do with him, Wouldn't they want to flee to a place where God is not? They they wouldn't want to go where God is. They would want to flee to a a place where God is not. So if God isn't in hell, then hell, in a sense, becomes attractive to the non-believer. Because they want to escape him. They want to get away from him. They want nothing to do with him. You can imagine a criminal who just murders someone in the United States, and the law is out to get him. The police, the FBI, they're after him, and he's evading them. And his plan is to, as so many movies have depicted, to cross the border into Mexico so that he's no longer in American jurisdiction. And so that the law enforcement in America has no jurisdiction in Mexico, so he'll be, he'll be off. And so he hatches his plan to go to Mexico, and he gets away. And they have, the American authorities have, they have no authority or jurisdiction there. And that's what criminals will do. But the non-believer tries to escape God and he crosses the border from heaven to hell, so to speak, and he realizes, oh no, God is here too. I can't escape him. I can't escape his justice. So the presence of God is manifested in hell in his wrath and his justice. God's wrath is presently being manifested in hell as he justly punishes non-believers who have broken his law. He is there. He is there. God is above us. God is below us. But let's look now again to our text, verse 9, horizontally. If I take the wings of the morning refers to the east where the sun rises in the morning. It rises in the east. If I take the wing, uh, the wings of the morning, the east, and dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, the west, even there your hand shall lead me and your right hand shall hold me. So think of Jerusalem on a map. The sun rises in the east and what's to the west of Jerusalem? The Mediterranean Sea. And so he's saying, your far to the east where the sun rises you're all the way to the west in the uttermost parts of the sea God you are on each side of me west and east you're above and you're below you're in the east and you're on the west so God totally and entirely surrounds David he totally and entirely surrounds you he's everywhere And again, in verse 10, for David, we see how this is a great comfort for him. Even there, your hand shall lead me, and your right hand shall hold me. No matter where I go, you are there, God. I don't have to fear. You will hold me, you will lead me. When we're in our darkest days, when we have this cloud over us, and we just can't see, we can't think clearly, we have this veil over us, and we might be in some depression, and you just don't know what to do or even what to think. Just trust this promise. Just trust this truth. Even there, God is there with you, leading you and holding you with his strong, sovereign right hand. And he will not let you go. This comforted David. It should comfort you as well if you're in Christ. Let's now think about our third truth that I want you to know and to trust this morning and it's this that god created you god created you so we see this starting in verse 13 through 16 now david basically what he is doing is he's answering the question okay well how does god know everything about me and how is god present everywhere How does his presence surround me? Well, he answers the question. Because he created you. He formed your inward parts. He knitted you together in your mother's womb. He created you. And everything about this language in verses 13 through 16 speaks of God's intentionality with you. His intentionality. You're not a product of random chance. Or good fortune or whatever. The way that you are, the way that you look, your intellect, the opportunities you have in life, the circumstances, the relationships that you have, the people that you meet, none of it is by random chance. God created you. God created you. Let's think about this for a moment. This is the irony that Cody brought up. It's Father's Day, but we're going to talk about mothers. <laughs> Sorry. Sorry, dads. <laughs> Let's talk about this reality of the mother's womb. This sacred space. The sacred space. You knitted me together in my mother's womb. Now, many of you know that motherhood Womanhood, femininity, pregnancy, babies, children. All of that's under immense attack today. Immense attack. Maybe more than ever in human history. People aren't even having kids anymore. It's a crisis all over the globe. So many developed countries are literally not able to even replace their population. And so they have this crisis where they have all these old people and not enough children being born to start to work to actually create some wealth to care for the old people. And so it's just a crisis. Japan, South Korea, China, they're really experiencing it right now. Their, their economies are just going to crumble. Their, their countries are literally going to crumble in the next 50 years. And America is in the same position. Not quite as bad, but we're getting there. Just think about this. You get married, a husband and a wife, two people. In order to replace yourself, you have to have two kids. In order to add to the population, you have to have three kids. And if you have just one kid or no kids, population is declining. Now, the only reason that America is continuing to increase in population is because of immigration. Because Americans aren't having kids either. Now, I know I'm preaching to the choir here, because if you just look around, there are so many babies here. There are so many people here that love children and are rejecting this cultural narrative that's being believed by so many people globally, even. But obviously, we know that life, babies, pregnancy, it's under immense attack. Obviously, we know the issue of abortion. You know, Roe v. Wade was overturned, which is an amazing. Victory, but yet still this battle in the states. It's still this great sin that mars America. But this place, the mother's womb, is a sacred space. Literally, it seems like David is saying that God has ordained that the mother's womb is the place where he's going to build and form and fashion human life. And then in our sin, it's violated, this sacred space. It's desecrated by unholy hands with unholy passions. But, oh, women, you have such a divine gift that God would ordain to knit together human life, image bearers of God, eternal beings inside of you and manifest His presence in a unique way in your very womb. You know, obviously we're learning that God is present everywhere, but yet when we read through the Bible, he uniquely makes his presence known in certain places. In the Garden of Eden, he uniquely made his presence known. In the tabernacle, he uniquely made his presence known. In the temple, in the Holy of Holies, and now in the New Covenant community, he uniquely makes his presence known in us and in the gathered church. Right now, we are the church gathered, and God makes his presence uniquely known here And it seems like David is saying that there's something kind of going on in the womb of a woman when there's a baby growing in there. That God is uniquely in there doing something amazing. And he's knitting this human life together. It's a sacred space. It's a sacred thing. It's a God thing. It's a holy thing. It's a good thing. What this world needs to hear is a very simple message. Repent of your sin, believe in Christ, kill your flesh, go to church, get married, have kids, teach him to fear the Lord. A very simple message, but oh, such a radical message today, so radical today, but that is the message that we must not be afraid to preach, to teach, to tell the whole world. Trust in Christ, get married, have kids, teach them to fear the Lord. So simple but so impactful. Now, verse 16, if we move on, is very insightful. As I mentioned in our first point, I said, well, how does God know our future? And I said, we're going to table that for point three. Well, we're here now. How does God know our future? Well, here's the answer. Verse 16, Your eyes saw my unformed substance in your book, were written, every one of them, the days that were formed for me. When? When were they written, David? When as yet there was none of them. Very, very clear. What is David saying? God, you wrote my days. You wrote my very existence before I even existed. We could say before creation, eternally. God wrote your story. God wrote your days you know think about just you know a famous fiction book I'll use Lord of the Rings as an example and we see all these providential things happening in the story of the Lord of the Rings I think especially when the eagles show up obviously you guys are familiar like when the eagles show up you go wow that was just by the nick of time what luck what good luck that the eagle showed up but that is a showing that, you know, obviously Tolkien was a Catholic, so there's this reality of providence there. There's someone behind the eagle showing up in the perfect point of time. But the thing is, is that it wasn't just luck or random chance. Tolkien wrote the story already. He wrote the eagle showing up at the right time. He wrote it. Your life is like that. Our very existence, our universe, our world is like that. It's God's story. He wrote it already. It's his It's his. And we get to experience it unfolding right before our very eyes. The story already written. That's how he knows the future. Because he wrote the future. It's already written. Now, this can be some hard truth to swallow. I understand that. And there's this dangerous teaching among Christian circles that will say, well... The reason that God knows the future is because God looks into the future. And He acquires knowledge that He doesn't already have. Somehow, some way he, he can look down the corridors of time and He can gain something. And whenever you hear the words gain, acquire, in association to God, red flags, sirens. Because God is a perfect God. He lacks nothing. He needs nothing. He knows all things, right? How could he ever acquire knowledge? How could he ever acquire or learn anything? If he could, he wouldn't be God. And he wouldn't be able to create then. The reason why God can create the universe is because he lacks nothing. And so out of the overflow of his abundance, his infinite abundance, he can create. And if he lacked anything, he could not create. He would be dependent on creation. He would be dependent on something else in order to create. Well, that creates a giant problem for us. Well, this other thing then must be God. And everything crumbles. The only way that we can exist and actually have a reality is because God is perfect. And he lacks nothing. He knows all things because he wrote all things. If God looks down the corridors of time to gain knowledge, God changes. And the Bible is very clear. We worship a God who does not change, who cannot change. He's perfect. He lacks nothing. That's an amazing thing, though, and that should bring great comfort to us once again as it did to David. Even remember Matthew 10, 28-31. Jesus is saying, Do not fear those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul. Rather, fear him who can destroy both soul and body in hell. Then he says this, Are not two sparrows sold for a penny? These, the most insignificant of animals, these sparrows are sold for a penny. And not one of them will fall to the ground apart from your father. But even the hairs of your head are all numbered. Fear not, therefore, you are of more value than many sparrows. What's Jesus saying? He's saying, hey, guess what? Even these gross sparrows, these these insignificant animals, they don't fall to the ground apart from the the Father's doing, apart from the Father's will. It's not saying he looks into the future, he knows when they're going to die. No, he ordains when they're going to fall into the ground. It's not saying that he counts the number of hairs on your head and figures it out. It says... It's basically saying, no, he, he determines how many hairs you have on your head. God is sovereign in that way. So Charles Spurgeon used to say that, an illustration of this, you know, when you see in a dark room and a window and the beam of light is shining through, and it's this very clear beam through the darkness. And in the beam of light you see these little particles of dust just floating around. And it seems like a random movement of these dust particles. And Charles Spurgeon said, God is in control of their movement. Even those he's in control of. He's in control of everything. Why did the disciples, when they needed to replace Judas with a new apostle, why did they cast lots? Why did they basically roll dice? Well, because they knew God is in control of the movement of dice. Duh! And so we can go back to our original parable. Why did the horse come back with seven others? Because God rode it. Why did the sun fall off one of the horses and break his leg? Because God rode it. Why did the conscription officers come to enlist the son? Because God rode it. Why was he able to escape going to war? Because God rode it. That is the lesson that you have to realize for your own life. And you might be thinking, well, doesn't this make me a robot? You hear that all the time. Doesn't this make me a robot? The thing is, when you read Scripture, you never, ever get the, even the hint of an idea that we are robots, ever. Scripture describes us as people with wills that make decisions that have real consequences. We're morally accountable for the things that we do, the things that we say, the things that we think. We're real people. We're not robots. But the Bible is also very crystal clear that God is sovereign over everything. Everything. And we have to realize, we have to go back to what David says such knowledge is too wonderful for me. It is high, I cannot attain it. Your knowledge as a finite creature is infinitely less than the infinite God. There is an infinite amount of things that you just do not know or can know. The secret things belong to the Lord. And we have to rest in that and be humbled again. I'm not God, I'm a creature of the dust. I don't exist necessarily. God brought me into existence. Who am I to try to think that I could somehow understand how my will somehow works with God's sovereign will? Both are true in Scripture. God is sovereign. We are accountable, we do make real decisions. God wrote our days. We're still living them out, though, and making decisions. And we don't have to feel like we need to solve the mystery. There is mystery. And that's okay. So once again, the fact that God wrote your days, the fact that God created you should bring you great comfort. And that brings us to our final truth. And it's this, that God tests you. God tests you. So, again... As we said, this section gives us a glimpse into the background of likely what's going on with David. He's being afflicted. He's being assaulted. These men of blood are after him. These murderers, those who seek after the innocent to destroy them. These men who uh, have malicious intent who, verse 20, take your name in vain. They take the Lord's name in vain. And then David says... Do I not hate those who hate you, O Lord? Do I not loathe those who rise up against you? I hate them with a complete hatred. I count them my enemies. And we go, oh, ooh, that's a little tough. What's going on here? And it's hard. I mean, this is, this is a hard text. It's an imprecatory text. I think one way that we have to think about it, though, is for God because he clearly says in Psalm 5 that God hates all evildoers. It's very clear in Scripture. But we immediately interpret the word hate and God's hatred like it's a human hatred. just emotional. It's emotional and and it's just out of control. Passion, that's not God's hatred. Think of Romans 9, 13. It says, as it is written, Jacob I loved and Esau I hated. So love is always connected with this covenantal love is always connected with God's covenant people, the people that He has chosen, the people that He has saved. He loves them. That's what sets us apart from every other person. That's what sets us apart from non-believers, that we have the love of God. God loves us as His covenant children. He loves us. And that's what makes us distinct. It's this amazing privilege of salvation that we should be loved by God. And the antithesis to that then is hate. Well, if we are the ones that are loved by God because we're His covenant children, that therefore means then that those who are outside the covenant are those that God hates. Does that make sense? It's not emotional. It's not like your hate. It's a covenantal thing. It's a relational thing. So that could be going on here. And David likely knows this. And so in a sense, he's trying to mirror God. If God hates the people that are outside of the covenant that hate him and take his name in vain and are malicious well then I do too but maybe he goes a little bit too far I hate them with a the complete hatred and, and you go oh are you getting out of control David yes there is a place for righteous anger for a righteous zeal for the things of the Lord a desire for justice on evildoers that's all good and biblical but because we're sinful sometimes we can take it too far and we can let our sinful flesh get in the way. And so then I think that makes sense why he immediately transitions out of this in verse 23, and he says, like he started the whole psalm, instead of just saying, you have searched me and know me, he says, Lord, search me. Oh God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts. And see if there be any grievous way in me. Lead me in the way of everlasting So he's feeling, likely, this burning hatred for his enemies, for God's enemies. He's zealous for the name of the Lord. They're taking your name in vain, Lord. But then he immediately realizes, wait a minute. I'm a man of the flesh, too. I'm a sinner. God, search me. Know me. Try me. Test me. The Lord tests you. He tests you. All your sufferings in life, these moments and seasons of affliction and depression and the darkness that you go through sometimes, the valleys that you go through, God is testing you. He wants to purify your faith. And so our response, your response, should be like David. In the midst of that testing, in the midst of that cloud of darkness, when your enemies are against you, you're feeling afflicted, step back and do what David did. Lord, search me. Lord, know me. Lord, try me. And see if there be any grievous way in me. See if there be any sin in my heart. And lead me in the way of everlasting. You know, we're we're all sinners. Every single one of us who are now saved and in this amazing relationship with God, we were those who one at one point hated God we didn't want God to know everything about us we didn't want God to be present all around us we wanted to flee from him maybe if you remember your life as a non-believer maybe you can validate that yeah I remember I didn't I didn't want God to know my secret sin I didn't want this to be true that he's everywhere and that I can never escape him But if you're in Christ, this amazing, there's this amazing reality that he wrote in your book, in his book, that you would be saved, that you would come to know him in a saving way and experience what David says is everlasting life, the way of everlasting. And Think about this too. God wrote in this book before the foundation of the world that he would, God himself would come down to earth in the form of a man that he would take on human flesh. That he would live a perfect life obeying the law of the Father. And that he would then be betrayed. That he would be mocked and spit on and slandered and accused of things he did not do. That he would be hung on a a cross, nailed to a cross, be bloody and marred, That he would then even take the wrath, the infinite wrath of the Father on sin, on himself. That he would bear your sins on his shoulders, in his body. He wrote that in his book for himself. That he would suffer that way. That he would face infinite wrath. That if you had to face it, would result in an eternity in hell. He took it. On the cross, he wrote that in his book for himself, so that you might know everlasting life. And then he wrote in his book for you that he would save you, that he would give you faith, and give you his righteous record, and forgive you of your sins, so that you might experience know him. That's amazing. That should bring great great comfort to you. And if you're in here. And you don't know God or Christ in a saving way, and you are in this point of terror, just realize you can't flee from God. You can try to flee from Him, but you're never going to get away, so you might as well flee to Him. You might as well flee to Him. You can know Him as your judge, or you can know Him as your Savior. You could rest in His embrace where His right hand holds you firmly or you could face his rod of judgment. It's either or. So if you don't know Christ, flee to him right now. Trust in him. Repent of your sin and believe in him for salvation and you will know everlasting life. Let's pray.